Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. You're just not that big of a deal. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Jackie Pelland. Jackie obsesses about leadership. She is a founding partner of the organizational design company Slingshot 25, where she designs and delivers leadership learning programs and provides executive leadership coaching. For 25 years before starting her own company, Jackie was an employee in big telecom and aerospace companies. This means she's no stranger to complicated corporate environments that are controlled by bureaucracy and office politics. Jackie shares her journey from growing up in small-town Iowa to college to the complicated and unnecessarily toxic corporate environments. Her mission is to bring humanity and joy to the heart of the employee experience. Her message is consistent and singular. She believes every single employee deserves a great place to work. We mix it up on leadership, explore the Sunday scaries, and leaders' ability to deeply impact the lives of those in their organization. I appreciated Jackie's willingness to share what she's learned, as well as her positive energy focused on unleashing the power of positive leadership. We discussed how the general principles of leadership haven't changed in 200,000 years, yet why each generation struggles with learning and applying the lessons of leadership in our complex world. This includes the skills gap of leaders, as well as sociopathology that presents itself in HR and executive leadership. I enjoyed Jackie's insight that coaches ask questions. They don't give advice. It was an honor having Jackie join me on the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, and I, I do want to say just thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast. I have um, been, I guess, what do they say, longtime listener, first time caller, um, and I really enjoy it. So thank you for letting me be your guest on this episode. So a little about me. Um, I think it probably makes sense to first sort of say sort of who I am in this world right now, which is I am somebody who obsesses about leadership. That's what I do. And um, I'll back up here and tell you a little bit about how I got there. Um, but that's that's kind of the seat that I'm sitting in right now is I just think about I, I think obsess is the right word. I do obsess about what it means to lead, how leaders show up, how we're leading others. Um, and I'm a I'm a product of corporate. So that's part of the journey that I'm going to talk about here. But I'm a product of the corporate world. I worked in some really large organizations and I, I really think a lot about how leaders show up specifically in that space. So I don't, I don't think too much about political leaders and all of that. Like, you know, all of that has got plenty to talk about, I'm sure. Right. And maybe we shouldn't talk about right. it. <laughs> well, where, so where did your interest in leadership start, do you think? Oh, gosh. Um, 
So it started in the corporate world. So I, so I'm, I'm, I'm from Iowa. Like I am from small town, Iowa, um, born in small town, Iowa, you know, went, went through school, got a degree in psychology an undergraduate degree, which sort of leaves you in this space of what the heck are you going to do with yourself? And so I just got a corporate job. You know, I just joined, uh, 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 it was actually in telecom back in the 90s when the telecom was very different than it is today. Like this was back in the days of calling cards. And Long distance calls. phone bills. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Um, this was back when landlines ruled the day. Um, so I just I just found myself, I kind of fell into it. I, I don't think I, I have to say I wasn't, I wasn't super planful about my career in those days. So I just fell into this corporate job and I, um, I started to observe leaders then. I, I don't think I was really thinking about them. I think the fact that I'd gotten a degree in psychology made me a little bit attuned to people's behaviors. Um, and I just, I was treated to leadership. Maybe I'll say that, or maybe inflicted, <laughs> maybe a victim of, <laughs> of, of corporate leadership. So I had you know, I had managers after managers in, in that world. And I, um, I, I suffered under a lot of that. And I saw a lot of really bad examples. And, you know, just coming from Iowa, coming from small town, Iowa, I feel like I had some values that are grounded in that. I can't say that everyone in Iowa shares the same values. You know that. Right. Um, but there is there is a sensibility, I guess, that comes from that. And there were some values. And, and a lot of the people I was working for, you know, they were, they were big city people. Um, Washington, D.C. was the big city that, um, that, that I had a lot of leadership coming out of that place. And, um, and I just, it didn't, I knew something wasn't right. I knew something wasn't right about the way I was being led. There was, you know, I had, you know, every week I would have what people call the Sunday scaries, right, of just knowing you had to go back into that place tomorrow and that you just, you know, you just didn't feel fulfilled. Soul crushing is a word people will use, maybe a little bit dramatic. Um, but I was, that's the life I was, I was leading. And that's what I was experiencing. And I knew, I guess I knew in my heart that that can't be right. That is this what it's, is this what it's all about? Is this what, you know, is this what you have to grow up and, and then, you know, join the real world and get a real job? And this is, I left college for this. <laughs> Exactly. Well, at least back in the, oh my gosh, 80s. Now I'm really yeah. dating myself. At least you didn't leave with the enormous college bills that you leave with today. Right, right, right. <laughs> but you know, enough, right? It's all relative. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's exactly how I was feeling. Uh, it was just, in, so I think that it was then that I started to think uh, there's maybe something I can add to this, um, add to this this journey of, of what it means to live in work in the, in the corporate workplace. And, you know, these companies are doing nothing but getting bigger all the time. Um, and they are taking up more and more um, of the employment in our world. And so I think the that journey that I started so long ago to say, this, this has got to change. This isn't, this isn't okay. I think it's become even more urgent through the years for sure. Thank you. I, I, I want to go back to the Sunday scaries. And as, a, as I'm chuckling, not because they're funny, but as, as somebody that had those as well. Uh, and I can't help but separate that too from uh, just what you were, you were talking about with um, 
kind of reminds me of work-life balance. And those Sunday scaries, not only were your, your, your Monday through Fridays getting eaten up with some toxic environments, right? But you're, you're losing part of your weekend, your precious weekend, or at least I was, that's how I felt because once Sunday afternoon rolled around or, uh, if it was, if it was winter, right, we're dealing with less daylight and the afternoon football game was already on. It's like it, it's dinner and then it's getting ready for the week. And that just that acid pit in the stomach is already starting. Yeah, you know, you're right. You describe it really well. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry you suffered through it too. But I'm sure anyone listening to this I, I, is, has, has suffered through it in some fashion. Uh, mine was 60 minutes. You know, the show, 60 minutes. When you would hear that clock ticking to me, that was like, yes, yes. I, it's still on Sunday nights, if I if I recall. No, that's right. Um, that's, yeah, that's another one too. I, I do remember it was, uh, it, 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 it was more of an uh, ominous emotional time bomb ticking away. Right. Right? Yeah, I know that, that that ticking of the 60 minutes stopwatch was always sort of like it just it's still still to this day, even though I'm, I'm very much in a different career place now, having struck out on my own and left the corporate workplace. Um, it's, it, it still though can sort of resonate with me that way when I hear, I, I feel bad 60 minutes is a great show. And I feel, bad that, <laughs> you know, that their, that their logo, their whole identity of their, you know, the sort of their intro just gives me the, the Sunday scaries feelings all over again. <laughs> yeah. What I'd like to jump, uh, ahead in, and I apologize. I probably jumped back and forth quite a bit in our conversations. Uh, but I do want to talk about uh, you, you striking out on your own because I'm really excited about uh, the work that you're doing. But uh, for guests, do you mind just describing uh, your your company? Because I also want to even just dig into to the the name and the genesis story that sits behind that. Yeah, sure. So, so I work for a company. I, well, we started the company. I work for now. I can't believe See, it's, I'm a corporate employee. I work for the company. So I'm a partner in and started a company called Slingshot 25. And yeah, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about the, the genesis of that name. But essentially what we are is we're a consulting company and we work with corporations. That is sort of our main target. Um, we work with corporations to share what, um, you know, so when I say we, I've got a couple of business partners, but my job in this partnership is to work with corporations on leadership um, to help them sort through uh, what are the things that are challenging their leaders, challenging their teams, creating dysfunction. So we do um, leadership development programs. I do a lot of coaching and the, the story behind Slingshot 25, the name has a lot to do with coaching, the things that I've learned as a coach. Um, so I do a lot of coaching, a lot of training of leaders, a lot of speaking gigs. I love, you know, anytime you hand me a microphone, Matt, you know, I will, <laughs> you're, you're not gonna get it back. Like I really like to, I just get a lot of energy from, um, it just, just having creating moments for people to look at this, the corporate space that they're living in and the environments that they're living in, look at those in new ways and think about them. I like to, you know, kind of flip things upside down sometimes or bring sort of myth shattering ideas, um, to, uh, you know, to the microphone essentially, and, and, and put those ideas out there and give people inspiration and, and hope for, um, really a new approach to leadership altogether. Thank you. <clears throat> Pardon me. And yeah, do you, do you mind too? Like I, cause, uh, so a lot of the time I've spent, uh, 
in the world has also been just on the like symbolic creation of reality, right? How we, and symbols and what they mean and and different meanings, but uh, just even dissecting the name Slingshot Twenty Five, where where the name came from, uh, both both parts, if you don't mind, yeah. uh, or you you could say we just like flipped flipped to a book or we saw a sign that it was slingshots $25 and that sounded good. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a great, that's a good, that, that would be a better story. Um, it'd be so much easier to tell <laughs> and it would probably bore few, fewer people. <laughs> but we'll, we'll go with a long yeah. boring story of slingshot 25. I don't think it's boring. I think it's a really interesting um, story and, and, and there's a lesson in it because there's always a lesson in, in when I'm talking. So Slingshot 25, I mentioned that I am a trained coach. So I went through a, a coach training program from IPEC and IPEC teaches um, energy leadership coaching and why, by, and, and they mean, we mean something by energy. Energy is really like, you think about it as like mindset. And, and the, the best way I think that you know, anyone can understand the concept of energy is to think about a pair of glasses. Like if you put on a pair of glasses that has blue lenses in it, the world's going to look blue. Yeah. If you put on, you know, rose colored glasses, the world <laughs> looks rose colored. So energy is really that concept. So this is, this is the, the coaching that I was trained in, like how to um, dissect how people are seeing the world and help them to see it differently. So in the level, there's levels of energy. There's these seven levels of energy. That's man-made. That's nothing divine about that. Um, just seven levels of energy from all the way from level one energy is way down at the bottom when we're feeling like a victim. Like, doesn't matter what I do. You're going to do what you're going to do. I have no impact in the world. That's a very low level, you know, pretty dark mindset to have. All the way up to level seven energy, which is Frankly, it's a pretty detached form of energy, a detached mindset of just, you know, nothing is neither good nor bad. Right? Just thinking makes it so, and we're all one, and not a, lot, not a lot of work gets done with that kind of a mindset. But And then everything in between, right? So there's all these different levels of energy. So now I'm getting at the numbers of two and five are really energy levels. So that's what we mean at, with the 25 and slingshot 25. Level two is um, an energy level that is associated most with conflict. You know, so it's, it's a step up of feeling like, you know, I'm the, I'm the bug and the world is the windshield. At least it has a little bit of, you know, like get up and go to it. Um, but there's a lot of conflict at that level. There's a lot of like, uh, I win, you lose, you know, in order for me to win, you probably need to lose. And just it, burning it, a lot of cycles there, right? Yes, that's right, exactly. And, and the crazy thing is, and it, you know, I, I we, we all identify with this level of energy. And frankly, it is the resonating level of energy inside corporate America. It is, you know, so, you know, it's not that everyone in that has a corporate job is, is angry, conflict riddled, I win, you lose kind of people, but it is sort of the energy that tends to rattle around the halls, if you will, of corporate America. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of fear-based, um, you know, I guess approaches to work. And, and so it's that energy level that we're talking about when we talk about the 25, the slingshot 25, because level five energy, right? The other number is, is much higher resonating energy and it's associated with opportunity, innovation, like win-win solutions, like for real, not the fake win-win right. that yep. corporate America talks about a lot, but the real win-win that we all matter and there's so much we can do together. So now you add the slingshot into those two numbers. And what we're really talking about is we like to work with teams 
companies, individuals, and then act a little bit like a slingshot. Pull back, pull back, observe what all of this sort of level two energy going on, and then slingshot forward. Like take that and slingshot forward to all of the opportunity and win-win kind of thinking that happens at level five. That's what we help individuals and organizations to do. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. And I know, um, again, before you had walked me through that just in a different conversation and I loved it. I just wanted to make sure I didn't, uh, step on the story, but I, I do like that idea of one stepping back right, to like, for me, from a design perspective too, we, we always talk about zooming in and zooming out, right. Sometimes getting more detail, but also gaining that perspective. And then your slingshot analogy, or metaphor for me is also sometimes when we're looking, it's hard, especially when we're stressed or and it's it's hard for us to to gain that important perspective, and how stepping back can help. And you could, it, for me, sometimes just see a very there's oh there's a much easier path. <laughs> it was just out of my periphery, but now that I can see it, there's a direction that I might take. I love that. Yeah, that is so that is so rich and so so perfect. You're absolutely right. I love that. Yeah. So here's here's something that came up in a LinkedIn uh, thread related to uh, some folks that I do work with a post and uh, I just thought it was incredibly provocative. uh, And uh, the the statement was so many people right now are talking about a skills gap. But it's always talked about like frontline workers and said that the the true issue really is a leadership skills gap that exists, right? But it's it's almost like the in some ways like like this or bed model, right? That even 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 people in leadership, right, using air quotes in these leadership positions, really just management kind of they're just occupying org chart space, right? But what what they're doing is like, it's easy to blame the cast, so to speak, right? Yeah. But it really is, uh, I think the, the struggles we have on so many levels are we have a true leadership skills gap. Yeah. And I know we said, we're not going to talk about politics. So, and we can leave that out of there as well, but they're ripe with that as well. Of course, but, yes. But but when I think about what even even civic leaders, there's a lot that we struggle with a uh, true skills gap. But when we when we see it in organizations, I think there's a gap there. But I'm kind of curious on just your reaction to you know somebody like what if we pointed the finger when we talk about skills gap instead of saying this is something that a community college needs to solve for frontline workers, this is actually something that needs to be solved at the leadership level first. Yeah, I think so. Um, So I I see everything that you're talking about. Yeah, there is a skills gap. And one of the things that I think is when I'm, when I'm, when I'm feeling a little punchy myself, um, (laughs) I've been known to say uh, like, why are we still even talking about this? Like is leader, why is this even a thing still? Because leadership and and the things that we need from our leaders hasn't changed in 200,000 years. And so why is this even a thing? Like, I realize that I'm actually earning a living off of this thing. I still some days marvel that this is even a thing. Uh, we, we have needed the same thing from our leaders for 200,000 years. It really hasn't changed. Clearly, the context of our lives has changed. The the you know the puts and takes and the and the and the in the fashions and the styles and right. and, and technology has has changed like unrecognizably. 
But the things that we have needed, one human to another human, essentially haven't changed in 200,000 years. And so I, in, in, in the work that I do, I draw on, of course, a lot of people have come before me because the story hasn't really changed. We've had, um, we've had moments of, of misinterpreting and getting it really wrong through the generations. Um, but it, it, when, we, when we return to the basics, when we return to sort of the fundamental things of what we've needed from our leaders, we will find that the same truths hold today as they did from when we crawled out of caves, right? We needed, we needed our leaders to see us, um, to give us a sense of belonging to that group, um, to, to, to see our value, to, to see what we uniquely bring to the group, and to ensure that we, that we know that we are learning and growing in this space, that we're making progress, that we're, you know, we're contributing, we belong, you know, this is fundamental stuff. And yet here we sit. And I, I read in a book uh, recently, I love this quote, so I'll, I'll, I'll give the book. It's um, called Humanocracy, which is a fantastic read right now. And um, the authors made the comment of every single generation rediscovers what it takes essentially to lead, to engage employees. You know, they're thinking too of the corporate workplace. Every generation rediscovers that and then promptly does nothing about it. So it's like, we just, we just, we can't put ourselves on the hook. And I think that's the area that I'm most interested in the work that I'm doing now. Isn't, I don't have anything new to say about leadership, Matt. I think it hasn't already been written in the four million leadership books on Amazon. Um, But I am very interested in putting people on the hook for that skill gap you just mentioned. It doesn't need to be a skill gap. And we do, we point the finger um, and I, you know, some of this comes through in the things that I've seen in the corporate world. Um, here's a, here's a, gr- a classic, for example, um, the, you know, so every, many companies, uh, some are moving away from this now, but many companies do annual performance reviews and they give out ratings and, you know, then they figure out merit increases and things on that. Everyone knows that drill. Yeah. And we, I was working in an organization that um, I was in the HR department and we got a call in the HR department from, it wasn't just one leader, it was, it was, it was a few um, who, who expressed the concern that they shouldn't have to be bothered with all of that, that they should be able to essentially send their employees, you know, on down the hall to the HR department and have the HR department handle the performance review and the ratings and all of that kind of stuff. Like they didn't even essentially get that they as a leader are in the people business. They thought HR was in the people business and they were in the business of, you know, whatever it was, whether it's finance or operations or engineering or, you know, whatever. They thought that was the line of work they were in and they cannot be bothered with all this people stuff. And you've probably heard this. I know you've heard this before. Like someone will say something like, um, oh, you know, Matt, he's he's a really great guy, but he just he just doesn't, you know, he's a good leader, but he's not real good at the people side of leadership. And I find myself saying, I'm sorry, what's the other side? Like, I don't, I don't, I, I think this is where we have one of the most fundamental disconnects. And 
And I think it's in, it's inherent in what you were just saying, which is yep. it's not my problem. It's the frontline workers. They just don't have their act together. <laughs> That's really the problem. And yeah. So I, one of the things I'm hearing about coaching, which can be tough love and, for, and in so many areas, so it really does come down to there's an element of accountability right, for for that person, right? So as you've said, putting yourself on the hook, uh, being accountable to yourself, being accountable to others. Uh, and one of the other things that I found interesting in what you were saying too, was the, um, oh, good, good leader, just not a people person is that fascinates me. Uh, and there was, uh, I was just watching a uh, presentation, Stephen Courtright, who teaches at uh, University of Iowa on toxic leadership and had an HBR article that recently came out, but the, the title of the article was uh, Stop Making Excuses for Toxic Bosses. Right? And it, but you're right, that, that's almost like, it's, I don't know, is it like Stockholm Syndrome language that we use that, oh, I think they really love me. They just want me to be better. Uh, right. I, sh I, I should have skipped dinner with my family. I should have skipped my kid's birthday party because I need to get that spreadsheet in that they won't even look at. Uh, right. Right. But yeah, so many like the the unfortunate thing, too, is like, I think for people in corporate America, uh, how many felt seen anytime they read a Dilbert cartoon? Oh, right. That yeah. you, it, it should just be like this absurdity, other world, like world building that this crazy person did. But it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's not right. Yeah. So, no, it's not. It's not. It's real. And it's, it's where we get the saying, you know, you just can't make this beep up. Right. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the fact that um, that you can make an entire like award winning comic strip that to all corporate employees. The, so the Dilbert comic strip to all corporate employees was 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 really just like a, an autobiography. And it's hysterical, right? It's hysterical when seen, when, when all of the context is removed and we just get to the ridiculous behavior that goes on, it, you, can, you can actually just put it into a comic strip and make it comedy because it is, it, you, you, you just can't make this bleep up, right? It's, it's, it's crazy. So a couple, a couple areas too that um, just where the conversation's going, I'd love to explore with you. So I'll, I'll do this a little choose your own adventure. I'll throw two different topics out. I want to cover both, but we'll see which, which we want to talk about first. Um, and, and feel free to say, Matt, that's stupid. Okay. That's not even interesting. That's Can not just, even interesting. I might just say that anyway, because you let me, you, you gave me permission. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, wait, let me go back to accountability first. So through, one of the things I really appreciated, a really good friend of mine uh, in my career, if I was complaining about work, I remember him pausing, listening, pausing again, and then saying, Matt, I got to tell you, in these stories, there's one common denominator and it's you. <laughs> Yeah. Like taking that ownership for, yeah. for where I was at, but okay. The, the two different areas. So imagine that we're at the, the choose your own adventure. Why are the vast majority of HR policies in large organizations, uh, thou shalt not type things rather than behavior that they're for, uh, okay. it, and that the other is if organizations are so good at finance and business, why don't they have the ROI on retention, getting the most out of employees? So I'll leave those as, as general, somewhat provocative statements. Oh, wow. Well, you're, you're, just, you're just taking advantage of the fact that I've worked in HR, right? You, this is like the stump the HR person now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll have I'll some game, I'll add some game show music right now. 
Okay, I, I really, um, I think neither one of those questions is stupid, unfortunately. Um, so I'm not going to, uh, I can't, I can't. Oh, don't, that. don't worry. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll give you plenty of opportunities to call me. Okay. Stupid. Um, let's go with the HR policies. Um, yes. Because, you know, I feel like it's kind of like, because I am of HR, I get to mock HR. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to play that card right now. Um, so HR policies, why are they thou shalt not? Um, I think that there's a lack of imagination in HR. And I want to, um, I wish I had, you know, you should never really quote research if you can't remember where you read it. <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot here. Um, I, I was reading about sociopaths one time. <laughs> maybe, I don't even know if this research is real. Maybe I shouldn't quote it. But I, I just like it because, because it kind of resonated with me. Um, and sociopath, you know, sociopaths are, are fascinating. You know, they, they lack shame and humility and all a conscience, you know, all of this kind of stuff that is really terrifying. But, they actually but they're show really up good leaders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they show up in our organizations. And the, the two places inside corporate America, they tend to show up are in the C-suite, right? So, you know, and that, that kind of, you know, stands to reason because people who can, you know, sort of catapult their way to the, the very tippy top of very competitive, very cutthroat organizations tend to be people who do not flinch at um, stepping on the backs of others. So that, that story seems to make sense. But the other place that they, they claim to have found more sociopaths than any other department is in HR. And I don't know quite why that is, but, but I suspicion it has something to do with this question that you're asking. Um, so I don't know that I know any actual sociopaths in HR, um, but I think that there is um, a little bit of a lack of imagination. And I also think that there is uh, if it's if it's not sociopathology that we need to worry about in HR, I think that there though is a an inferiority complex sometimes that happens with people in HR because they're always that that you know that organization that doesn't feel like they're at the center of the business, right? Even you know even IT can at least claim that they have you know a lot of super specialized like oh you try sending your email without us you know kind of. Uh, at least swagger to them. And, but HR is always that department that I think feels like they have to prove their value. And, and, and it's, it, it's, can be elusive. So that might be related to your second question. Like, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you prove that this organization really needs to have people respect each other? How do you measure that? How do you measure respect? How do you measure caring about human beings? And so I think that there is, when we associate those kinds of, you know, those kinds of uh, approaches, like, you know, embedding the organization with those kinds of good human behaviors is the purview of HR. And, you know, all the policies and things that are supposed to make that happen or the, you know, the, the practices and the programs that are supposed to make those things happen, that's HR. And, I, and, and then because those things are hard to put into a, into a, uh, you know, into a balance sheet, I think that there's just, there tends to be sort of this creeping sense of an inferiority complex in HR. And um, so then I think that they, I think that, that lowers, maybe, maybe lowers their um, willingness or bravery or something to, um, to, to really take on some of these more complex 
um, you know, nuanced, slightly nebulous kinds of challenges that plague um, the corporate world. And they instead sort of get busy a little too much in the, like what I'll call like the transactional space. Um, yeah. They, you know, they, and, and goodness knows there's a lot of value that comes out of HR that is just, you know, purely in the space of making sure you've got your benefits and you get paid on time. Right. So I, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if that's fully answering the question. No, but it's, that yeah, it, that's something it, there. It's, it's great. And I appreciate that. And one of my hunches or hypotheses too, with a lot of organizations is how complex the world has become and you know like the the way we react but one one of the things i know from a complexity side uh which you know it, it doesn't mean i have all the answers right it, it it comes with all of its uh blind spots as well but through that through that lens uh we we know from system dynamics that uh managers I'll say managers uh, more than leaders, right? But we know managers are really adept at sniffing out problems. Like they are so good at identifying the problem space. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the things they do pushes the solution lever in the exact opposite direction. It's almost counterintuitive. We get we get the opposite results of what we're we're looking for. And so sometimes I think about also how the world has become much more complex. Uh, in the HR space, it, like just talking about the time that you and I have been it, left college, went to corporate America, right? But uh, you know, there was a time you didn't need. Look, is there a cell phone policy, um, right? Who 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 does who gets a phone? Uh, let alone uh, what's the social media policy, right? Are you are you allowed to be you on social media, or are you always an agent of the organization, right? Those those are things that even a decade ago, a little over, you, you didn't have as much. So I, I see like always trying to react. And then the hard part, one of the harder parts too, is I think humans tend to add to fix a problem rather than step back and subtract. Like, so, okay, if this is the new state of the world, what other rules can we take away? But I just, um, so I, I, I find some sick joy sometimes in mocking HR policies, but to, to your point, like empathetically, there are some really robust challenges and they've probably sniffed out a lot of the problem spaces and, and probably have identified the right target. But uh, sometimes when we treat it like, you know, this, this, this is how it would have been treated 10, 20, 50 years ago. It, it doesn't, it doesn't match the, the kind of life real world experience of the employee. Yeah, I think there is, um, I'll kind of go back to maybe a little bit of this inferiority complex. And I, I you know, I, I, I certainly am not standing here accusing every HR employee of having some sort of inferiority problem. <laughs> um, but I think it, it is, it can be kind of creeping in that space. Um, is a lot of people, what I've seen in organizations is a lot of people think they can do what HR does too. And they really like to get involved in um, in defining all the policies. Um, I've seen examples of where, you know, they've um, sort of the, the business people um, have said, you know, we can design a better performance management system than HR can. So let us define it. And then they, you know, they put a bunch of engineers on the task. Well, guess what engineers do with a performance management system? They turn it into an engineering problem instead of a human problem. Right. And I've seen, you know, I've seen HR willing to sort of, you know, sometimes allow that um, to happen. Again, 
you know, again, I'm just talking about some of the dynamics that start to happen between HR and the rest of the organization and, and those things can happen. And we end up with um, people using, and I know you are, you, you are a, um, a reader of the theory of complexity. So you know what I'm talking about here, but um, which we can unpack that model if it has any value, but it's essentially, it's just saying that they're using the kind of thinking that you would use to solve what we we call a complicated problem, but a problem that has, that has, um, you know, correlation between cause and effect. That's a complicated problem. Once we figure it out, it's figure out a bowl and we can figure it out again and again and again. But they're trying to use that kind of thinking to solve problems that are beyond complicated. They are complex. There is no consistent correlation between cause and effect, um, which all human behavior falls into that space, really, at least to an individual level. Um, And so we just keep wanting the world to be that figure outable. And there's an example of this. I was teaching, I don't remember exactly what the leadership subject that I was teaching, but it was you know, something, human dynamics of some sort. And I remember sitting in the front row of, of my training class was two engineers, you know, so very scientific minded people. And thank goodness, right? Because we need engineers to be very scientific minded to do the work they do. But one leaned over to the other and I could hear them say, this would be so much easier if they were all just robots. So these were two engineering, I mean, I should say, by the way, they were leaders, but they were in right. leaders in the in an engineering space. And I just thought, oh my gosh, that's so perfect. Number one, they're being super honest. <laughs> this would be so much easier if they were all just robots. But it also told me they got it, essentially. They essentially understood the challenge that was before them, which is I was describing the kind of thinking that it's going to take, the kind of approach that it's going to take, to deal with human problems. They are not the same as robot problems, right? Yeah, it would be easier if they were all just robots. So I also took that to be a sign that my job is harder than, you know, rocket science or robot right. science. <laughs> yeah, and, and as a parent, I can say there are times that I wish I could just you know, run a new program for my, you know, my kids to stay safe, behave, listen to me, right? I know, right? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> that would be really great. One, I'm sorry to say it doesn't exist, Matt. <laughs> One of the things that we uh, we've chatted about in the in the past, and I want to go back because you you kind of talked about the, with the energy uh, coaching and energy leadership, uh, the notion of mindset as mm-hmm. well, and um, it just. We, we've kind of like talked about how leadership in leadership education, it's not a one and done. It's not a transaction. You know, I'm, I'm, lead, I'm, lead, I'm leadership now stamped and approved, but how you, it is an ongoing practice and I, and, or craft, right? And I think about like analogs to artists who, you know, the best one will probably, they'll never claim that they're a master crafts person, right? But everybody can look at them and say, oh, there's, there's a master at work. But usually they're also always trying to improve their craft and what they do. And just kind of curious from your perspective, and maybe it just all is rooted in <laughs> sociopaths, but why why sometimes do we lo- don't look at leadership as an ongoing challenge? I, mean, I think in the past, too, we've had conversations relative to uh, my, mindset, because I use this in innovation and design. 
it it's it's a lot like a muscle as soon as you stop using it there's atrophy and what's even worse is then when you really need it you're probably going to strain it or break it <laughs> when you're trying to do what's really needed because you're no longer in shape but yeah. so again another opportunity to just say that i'm stupid but want to i'm curious about what it, what it, what might be that hurdle or mental gap on it seeming more transactional than more of an ongoing development mindset yeah so it's a it's a great question and it, 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 that it, that essentially gets uh the nature of what i obsess about more than anything else and i also want to say thank you for using the word craft because um I think that's exactly the right word to describe what leadership is. As a matter of fact, it's it's um, that that is a naming convention that we're going to that we're using in some of the content that Slingshot Twenty Five is putting out there. Is we're calling it a craft leadership series um, because I really think that leadership should be uh, treated that way. So the, the thing that I most obsess about is how we get leaders to approach their work as a craft and. And I would even like to define that craft as I want them to get them, I want to get them to think differently about what it means to be a leader. It's about, it's not about just a series of techniques. And all too often, so much of the development that's been out there, the skill building that's out there for leaders is about teaching them a series of skills and techniques. And I don't mind that stuff. I, I actually teach some techniques myself. I, 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 and sometimes I, I like to make really, um, you know, put ideas out there that are very um, catchy and, you know, try this little technique. Um, just, a, you know, like a, that's where a lot of it, my advice might come from is in that sort of catchy little techniques area. But ultimately it's much deeper than that. And so it's a, it's a mission to get leaders to approach and think about being a leader very differently, to change how they think about what it means to lead. And, you know, this is, this is kind of then rooted in the psychology, you know, of, of the field, which is um, we have to start with how they think about it. We can't just teach technique because that's the stuff that's really going to atrophy is if you learn all of these techniques, like I, we used to teach a, I, I've taught a course in the past called Crucial Conversations. It, many people have heard of it. Um, and it, it was a very popular course in all of the organizations that I've ever worked at. And, but people would come back again, again and again and again to that class. And which was really remarkable to me because it was a two day course which is hard to do. Like, it's hard to step away from your job for a couple of days. But I had people that would come to that class again and again. And when I asked them why, they'd give me some version of this answer of, well, you know, I still find it really hard to have these crucial conversations. <laughs> like, if I keep coming back, I must be missing something. Um, because this is, these still aren't easy to have these tough conversations with people. And, you know, my thought again, not to keep dwelling on sociopaths, I really don't think about them that often, um, is I, we, I would we, say- We them, might have a new podcast that we can spit up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like corporate it. CSI. <laughs> Ooh, that's not a bad idea, Matt. Um, but I would say to them, you know, the day that you wake up in, in the morning and say, yes, I get to have a crucial conversation today, you know, meaning that tough conversation where you're going to tell somebody they're not doing what they should be doing. The day you wake up, like, ready to go have that conversation is the day you realize you're a sociopath. Like it shouldn't, 
be fun. It shouldn't, you know, and, and so I think what they're really also telling me is that they're just trying to find what are the mechanics and the mechanism to make this job easier, to make it so I'm great at this. And I don't, there is no, the answer is there is, there, there is not that. It's not yeah. that technical. It's about a deeper shift. And that's where this mindset stuff comes from. It's a deeper shift in how you think about yourself as a leader. You change your thoughts first about how you think of yourself as a leader and what, what it really means, your job in relation to your followers. When you really make that shift, all of the technique, all of the behavior comes from that. I guess you shift it deeply, it, then it will start to change your emotions and how you see others and, and, um, and feel about this job of leading. And then the behaviors follow that. Thank you. Yeah, thinking about um, uh, kind of the, when you were talking about tips and techniques and then also the mechanics, one of my beliefs is, uh, especially in an organizational setting, because organizational settings just by their very nature just aren't natural, right? I mean, just the way, you, like when we talk about the evolution of humans, they're, they're not natural, Um still necessary and good and lots of cool things happen. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I get to use cool things that have been built and manufactured by organizations, not a, but it's just like it, it, we get removed from our natural state and then we have these techniques. And for me, some of the challenges have been uh, the organizations that I've worked with and for uh, a lot of people lose or don't know the intent behind the technique. And so it could have also been there for a very specific context, a point in time, right? And then it's, you, we hear, like I, I refer to organizational folklore, right? And there's even the stories about the grandmother that would cut the ends off the ham. Are you familiar with that one? Oh, yes. Yeah. I love right. That and then, so the family yeah. did it and then they finally yeah. asked grandma, well, why'd you do, because oh, I never had a pan big enough, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't affect the cooking of the ham, right? And it was <laughs> some of those, yeah. yeah, some of those folklore elements and, so sometimes just like, again, the design nerd in me is, well, what's the intent, right? Because it, in many ways, in the, the forness type of conversation, not against, like, what was this thing for? There might be new, better ways that we might approach it that still, you know, protects the intent. But I think sometimes we get locked into confrontational discussion, like debates over which technique is best. Right. Rather than the notion of what are we trying to accomplish. So you got it. there's not even a question there. Sorry, I was just stumbling through. But well, it's just it, that I, I love tips and techniques because for me, they're, they're opportunities to give a little bit of why behind yeah. it. And it's a, just a little bit of a mental hook and reminder yeah. for folks that might yeah. lead to positive behavior change. But I, I love that, too. Um, you're so I'll, I'm going to snatch a question out of all of that comment. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I think the question you just asked me was, do you see that, too, Jackie? And oh, that sounds that's yes. Yes. That sounds like a very wise question. Thank you. <laughs> and what this comes up, the, the way it comes out in my world is the stump the trainer stuff. Right. Of uh, I, I will see this all the time. So I find this really interesting. So of all the leadership training I've done, I've done many, many hours of leadership training, some of it good, some of it not so good. Um, and I always find it interesting. People come into the, into the leadership classroom and they suddenly are the best leaders in the world. 
Like, you know, they just, um, they have all these stories to tell about all their greatness. And I always find myself thinking, I'm not sure why you're here. <laughs> so I, so that, that happens. But it, it's, so the, this other thing happens where they will start to tell me these really complex situations. Like, you know, we could be talking about any particular technique. Uh, maybe it's a technique in, um, you know, sort of interpersonal, like one-on-one -on -one kind of conversations or something. And so they, they draft up this, you know, this, this sort of giant sort of long suffering story with plot twists and, and moral injuries and heroics and all these sorts of things. And then, and then they, and they throw it up there. So what would you do about that? Miss trainer pants, right? Um, so, <laughs> so as if there's like, oh, let me look on page 372 because the answer to that very specific situation is right there. No, of course that doesn't exist. Um, and one of the one I, I find that one of the very first things I ever say to um, someone who is just really struggling with some sort of long, you know, plot line of a story is, well, the first thing I would remind you is you're just not that big a deal. Like this is one of the first things I say to leaders when they are struggling with something that um, clearly everyone else is bad actors and they're the hero. Um, it is, is to remind them you're just, you're just not that big a deal. And we actually have a sign here in the offices here at Slingshot 25, a big sign that says you're just not that big a deal. It has become sort of our, um, it's our best advice to our, to all of our clients. And it's not intended to be an insult. It's intended to remind people that not everyone is worried about your behavior and what's happening for you. And um, they're, just, they're just not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. And if you're trying to navigate through all of these complicated situations, I think the very first thing is to just humble yourself a little bit here. And, and, and then the very next thing to be thinking about is, okay, it's not, it's not, I'm just not that big a deal. Okay. Breathe, breathe, right. Just breathe through this thing. Because then the second question is, is often around what do you think the other person is thinking and feeling? Like it just takes it right down to this level of it's just two people. You know, it's just it's just two people trying to figure something out, and and we get so distracted by the puts and takes, and he said, she said, and we're all trying to find moral injury in our own side of the story, and and to just sort of set all of that stuff down. There is no exact specific technique that will that is the right you know quote unquote right thing to do here. The better thing is to breathe and to remember that. Um, you really are just not, you're just not that big a deal. And, and, and neither, but neither am I, and neither are you, Matt, and neither I, is no, anybody else, right? And all I of love these. it. I, I, I love, and just thinking about what you're saying too is, well, some of it reminds me of uh, recently uh, Ed Hesse joined me on the show and in hyper learning, he was talking about uh, basically in a world of hyper complexity and, and growing AI, actually the, the way out is being more human, right? And, empathy, compassion, but it started with uh, basically centering yourself and reducing your ego, right? The, yeah. the necessary, the, you know, what a little bit of humility and humbleness might yeah. do in just all of our conversations in or out of the workplace. And uh, one of the things too, that it's my, 
my wife shared this with me one time and I, I've, I've loved it. It's, it's stuck with me. So if she's listening, it's proof that I do listen to her. Uh, but I remember one time <laughs> she just said, be, uh, be wary of the person that's the hero in their own story. That's right. That's so right. So I had to sort through. They were all idiots and I had to do this. And thank God I was there. Yes. And I find here's the other thing I find in that related to that is is we we litigate these stories over and over and over again in our minds or out loud, especially to our friends um, in, in in the retelling. And this is one of the things that as coaches know this really well, is that we all tell ourselves stories. And um, in, in, in our retelling is we flatten everyone else's behavior to good, bad, you know, bad usually, right? You know, it's just very simple. They were wrong, 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 wrong. And, and, and we, we start to inflate the, and, and make our behavior much more nuanced and complex. So we flatten theirs and we, we make ours more complex. This is, and as each, each layer of this intellectualizing that we, put down on these stories that we play over and over again in our head is, is really serving to, well, to feed that ego, right? Is to build certainty into our stories. Certainty, our, our ego wants that certainty. Our story is right. I was right. I did the much, you know, more sophisticated, nuanced, complex thinking. Thank goodness I was there because everyone else was behaving like a complete Other, Otherwise the fabric of space and time would have fallen apart. <laughs> I know. You, uh, when you're you, welcome for that, Matt. That I have held the fabric of space and time together all these years. It has been, yes. Thank yes. you. Yes. Uh, I didn't know where it was happening. Uh, <laughs> now sweet. I now I know, and I can thank you. Um, now, one related to what you're saying, this for me was personally insightful. Um, years ago, it was related to design training and human dynamics, but it was actually from, it was presented by people from Disney Corporation. And I, I remember one, like it, sometimes these nuggets that help us connect ideas, right? Just, and for me, this one was that uh, we, we, we judge others on their behavior. We judge ourselves on our intent. Mm. And like, e even if I did screw up, well, I didn't mean to screw up or I didn't mean to get mad at work or right, whatever, or I didn't. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but when we look at others, it's on their behavior and what we could see. And so That's right. only two, like when you were talking about even the, the conversation, what might the other person be going through and, yeah. and how we flat those things out to yeah. good, bad. And it's the behavior that we saw with, without knowing the intent and, and we, yeah, oh, we, yeah, we judge ourselves in these super nuanced oh, yeah. ways. Completely. Yeah, completely. Well, it, it, and everyone has heard of the fundamental attribution error. Well, I don't know if they've heard of it, but they've certainly done it, which is, and of course, we all do it when we're driving, right? When someone cuts us off, right, we, we attribute their behavior, their, their bad driving behavior, to the fact that they are a complete moron. And they probably have flawed DNA, right? And when we do it, when we cut someone off in traffic and don't tell me you haven't done it, right? We attribute ours this is kind of what you're talking about. We attribute ours to, oh my gosh, a much more sophisticated plot line of a bad day. I'm kind of in a hurry and this thing was in my head. And, and you know, if you were in my shoes, you'd have done that, you know, right? we attribute yeah, ourselves very differently than we attribute the behaviors of others. 
And this is in this, you know, that is what's interesting is that that is just one of many biases that rattle around in our head and, and, you know, and impact the way that we interact and, 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 you know, present ourselves to others. Jackie, thank you. One of, one of the things I want to touch base with you is uh, I'd like to ask guests, again, especially in the notion of being a craftsperson, mm-hmm. but do you ever feel stuck? What, what are, and if you do feel stuck, what are you, some of your personal tips or techniques uh, for getting unstuck? Yeah, I do. I, feel, I do feel stuck and I'm a, I'm a classic ruminator. Like I just, um, you know, all of these things that I've been talking about uh, are, are things that I've suffered through myself. And um, I will play things over and over in my mind. And I think that my, you know, you're just not that big a deal was, was originally advice to myself. And, and so I, I, that's my, that's my unstuck, you know, technique is just to, to breathe, remember that, you know, the classic of this too shall pass and nothing is ever what you think it is. And so I, I just use a lot of, I don't do it. Like I'm not a meditative person or, you know, anything like that, but I just, I just have really learned to appreciate and understand that the things that, you know, our elders have been telling us forever are actually true, are actually true. And I, I've like just decided to go ahead and embrace them. Like, you know, the, the stuff that you hear when you get to your deathbed, you will look back on your life and you won't care about all these, you know, I'm, I've decided to listen to that advice and to like bring it into my now. Like, I'm not that big of a deal. I'm just, I'm just not. Um, and and it, it, it brings some humility and some, you know, centering. I love how you said center yourself and reduce your ego. That's a much more eloquent way of saying you're just not that big a deal. Um, and I, I really do try to practice those things and call myself out. Call myself out on my ridiculous loops of rumination. So I like the idea, like on the deathbed, because sometimes I've I've had conversations, like dark conversations with colleagues, and it's like you know, I think what I'm going to tell my family. Uh, th- this assumes I don't die cold and alone out in the woods because I did something stupid. <laughs> but on, oh, on my be so Hemingway though, that'd be so Hemingway. <laughs> on my deathbed, it's going to be something like that's right. I should have blind blind CC Joe on that email. <laughs> Yes. But what if that is, Matt? What if that actually is your final thought? Like, that's what I, that's what I worry about for you. Uh, and, and Jackie, you did mention advice and talking to our younger self. Another thing I do like to close with with guests is the notion of, of advice. And I know we've cover, actually covered a lot that I think folks could, could take out of this. But uh, you, you, you said even embracing it from the, you know, like kind of what the elders have said. And yeah. The path that advice seems to take on this show is, yeah, sometimes it's something that an elder presented to us and we almost mocked it, right? When yeah. we were younger, we we thought we knew better and then we get older and we realize that was actually a pretty elegant payload on that package yeah. that they delivered to me. There was a lot of wisdom in there. And the others is like, like you said, a lot of times when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self, but um any other advice that you wish you either would have received earlier in your career or uh, advice that you've really appreciated from an elder or mentor? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, the word advice is just, um, it makes me think about this piece of advice, which is to stop giving so much advice. And that's, I mean, I direct that right at leaders. And I, I want to put this in context. Like, I'm really not, like, I know some people just really. Sorry, but that, that that was your, Matt, your stupid opportunity right there. <laughs> no. The notion of advice is stupid, Matt. <laughs> But I'm going to give a specific technique. So how do you like right that? Right on, right on. I love a specific, it. A specific technique to stop giving so much advice. And I can't I can't claim to have thought of this idea. But then again, I also think there are no original thoughts in leadership anymore. So um, I'll just go with that. Michael, well, no, I, you know what? I, you know what? I wanted to say Michael Bungie Stanier was the guy who said this, but now I don't think that's the right one. <laughs> I can't remember who this. Maybe it's that guy. Um, so someone else said this, yeah. which is... Um, it's, it's the 60 second rule of giving advice, which is, and this is directly to leaders. So if you are a corporate leader, you know, you're the people that I, that I obsess about. I want you to follow this advice of mine, please, which is when you have an employee that wants to talk about something with you, whether it's, uh, you know, something that they're just working on, like a, a project or whatever else it is, whatever it is, I want you in the first 60 seconds of that conversation to refrain from giving advice. And this is harder than it sounds <laughs> because what we typically want to do is the minute the solution pops into our head or you know what you should do or here's what I would do or here's what you thought of. <laughs> we have to put it out there. And I want you to just zip it and the only thing that can come out of your mouth for the first 60 seconds of the conversation, I mean, I don't want you to just silently blink at them because that's awkward, but I want you to, you can only ask a question. That's all you can do. And once you get good at the first 60 seconds, then you can start to stretch it out. What you'll find is that you will stretch it out a lot and you will find yourself almost becoming a coach because coaches don't give advice coaches ask questions and it's those questions that will turn people's performance around. So there's my advice. Stop giving so much advice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is great. Well, Jackie, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. So uh, just, and congratulations to, to you and the crew at Slingshot 25. Looking forward to all the great work that you're doing and important work to help transform leadership. So thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thank you much, Matt. I really enjoyed it.